Welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Over the next two decades, the number of people over the age of 65 in Australia will double. The dependency ratio, which describes the proportion of people in their productive work years from the ages 16 to 65, compared with those at the ends of the spectrum, continues to fall dramatically. The impacts of the ageing workforce is well known, and this is reflected across the globe. The challenge for many countries and industries is to retain older workers within the workforce. Little is known about the effects of the ageing workforce on the practice of intensive care. A recent paper in the Medical Journal of Australia by George Skoronsky and Carmel Pasaya has drawn attention to this subject. I asked George how this subject became of interest to him. It's a sort of thing as, as uh, I met people of my own era. I mean, I'm, I'm 61. And um, as I met people uh, at meetings and different things of, of, my, of my vintage, you know, we would sit around and, uh, and everybody agreed that, boy, you know, when you get called in at two in the morning for a septic shock or a major trauma nowadays, it's not like it was when you were 40. You feel it. And uh, so, you know, I've had those kinds of conversations on and off informally with people for a couple of years. And so when I was asked to sit on this uh, fellowship affairs committee of the college, um, I suggested why don't we take on, you know, issues of the ageing practitioner um, and trying to balance things like workforce shortages on the one hand and, uh, you know, wanting to keep people on in the intensive care workforce longer against questions of competence and capability and, um, and decline. It strikes me that ICU probably is one of the most vulnerable uh, specialties for the effects of this sort of thing. Would you agree? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, yeah, there are obvious things like, you know, getting called into very acute situations in the middle of the night, difficult airways, and multiple traumas, and there's no question. I, I certainly feel my skills in those things are declining and my reaction times are declining um, and I'm, I'm quite aware of that but you know you, you then wonder about uh, how, how many people are out there who, who are not aware who don't have that insight but having said that most of the work that's out there actually there's very little work about intensivists that's out there most of the work that's out there actually is about surgeons um, to the extent that I was even able to find there's even a meta-analysis on the question of, of whether older surgeons are better than younger surgeons. And something like 45 out of 49 studies they reviewed for this meta-analysis said that older surgeons weren't as good. And they particularly weren't as good for procedures that they did in low volume and high complexity. So, and, and I think there are messages in there for us as intensivists. So things that you're doing every day, if you're putting in a central line every day, uh, that's fine. Um, but if, for instance, um, as a senior intensivist, you only get to intubate a patient every three or four months, well, that's a problem, um, as it is a problem for surgeons. The recurring theme with surgeons is low volume and high complexity. So the problems that the surgeons have are things like the general surgeon who does the odd um, Whipple or Ivor Lewis does perhaps two or three of those a year. That is very good evidence performance of those sort of things goes right off uh, from about 60. 
there must be some issues there around career satisfaction too. I'd imagine, you know, if you, you're getting to a point in your career where you're no longer doing those procedures, that must have an impact on, on the satisfaction of your, your work life. Yeah, well, it, it has a, a, an impact on the satisfaction of work life, but there's also a bit of a paradox because if low volume and complexity are problems, um, on the one hand, if we're saying that people should stop doing those, well, then you're going to do an even lower volume. Uh, and if you're saying, well, okay, Skoronsky shouldn't be up there intubating people anymore, um, that's terrific. But what happens one day in the middle of the night when Skoronsky's the only guy there and it's a really difficult airway? So these are all dilemmas um, that we have to face, and there are different ways of tackling them. I mean, my, in my own case, uh, that particular issue, I've taken that on by... Uh, I've twice now done uh, one of these difficult airway courses. I take myself off and just do it. Um, as a way of just refreshing and playing with the new toys and keeping up with these sort of changes. So, again, part of it's just about people being self-aware and making sure that they're safe. During the article, you mentioned some uh, neurocognitive changes that are associated with the performance of older doctors. Can you take us through those changes? Yeah, look, the the most important thing about this, uh, because it has a lot of relevance to... Uh, ideas like uh, mandatory retirement or testing uh, of older practitioners. The the essence of it is that, first of all, the changes are highly variable. So some people um, notice changes um, at a relatively young age, as early as 55. Um, Other people uh, may not uh, demonstrate any changes to well into their 60s. So The first thing is that the pace of change is quite variable, although the changes are universal. Everybody gets hit by the neurocognitive changes of ageing at some point. The next important point point about it is that um, uh, things like semantic uh, understanding, um, factual knowledge uh, and verbal ability are very well preserved. So... It's not easy to tell just by talking to somebody or submitting them to a factual test of some sort um, uh, whether they have neurocognitive changes of ageing. The most important changes um, are in things like episodic memory, which is the laying down of new memories um, according to one's experiences. So episodic memory is a problem. Processing speed is a problem. So that has a lot of relevance, for instance, to emergency resuscitation um, uh, and, uh, and problem solving. So all the areas that are an issue with, uh, in, in terms of the neurocognitive changes have particular impacts on specialties like intensive care and are not that easy to test for. And the final thing that's important is that these neurocognitive changes uh, when they become, as they become more severe, uh, are characterised by a lack of insight. So you can't totally rely on people uh, to be self-aware, although we believe it's very important that education and encouraging people to be self-aware is an important factor in how we deal with this. There's been a couple of recent surveys that have suggested that burnout in intensive care practice is a significant issue and is something that as a workforce we're going to have to deal with. And I believe Felicity Hawker also 
found similar things in her survey in 2009. What is it about intensive care that makes that so difficult and, and how do you think we should be dealing with that? Uh, the first thing is that a lot of the data about burnout comes from the US. We don't have clear data about burnout uh, from Australasian practice. Um, having said that, though, Felicity's survey showed that um, of Australian, Australasian intensivists over 55, um, most of them were saying they didn't want to work more than a couple of years, and that suggested that burnout was becoming an issue too. Why are we particularly prone to burnout? Um, probably multiple factors, but some of it's to do with the acuity of the work that we do. Um, some of it, it's been suggested, is due to things like having difficult um, emotional conversations with, with patients and their families, things like end-of-life discussions. And I think everyone who's done that sort of thing on a regular basis uh, knows that it really does take it out of you. So they're probably some of the factors, but we don't really know a lot about them. You also mentioned the concept of senior career development, and this intrigues me. What do you mean by that, and, and how do you see career development for the older practitioner? Well, you know, it's, that's a work in progress, but I think it's something that um, bodies like the college and maybe ANZICs, for instance, should, should consider and take on. We've become, over the past few years, quite familiar with the idea of um, uh, preparatory um, courses for consultant practice, for instance. So we're, we're sort of semi-tongue-in-cheek nowadays about... about uh, part three uh, courses, that is, you've got your fellowship, um, let's have a course or a conference on the subject of um, how to be a consultant, and we talk about how to apply for jobs and, uh, uh, and how to set up your super and what are the um, difficulties and pitfalls of private practice and, uh, you know, some uh, medico-legal issues, uh, uh, superannuation and so on giving people um, additional information early in their career uh, to set them off. But we're proposing that that sort of thing also be applied to people approaching the end of their career. So we think that there is merit in having um, some uh, courses or conferences um, to discuss preparing for retirement. Uh, again, discussing, you know, how your super fund should be uh, taken care of, um, uh, developing non-medical interests, um, how you might modify your practice to uh, take in those into account, that sort of thing. So we, we think that, that there should be this concept of senior career planning. Indeed, we think um, we should make people aware early in their career um, that they will age, there will come a time when they need to slow down, they need to understand how that will occur, they need to have insight into it, and they need to prepare for it. The night shift thing is also troubling. Uh, you said that it was okay at 40. I'm 40 and I find that difficult. And I, I am sort of extrapolating on until the end of my career and find that quite frightening. Do you see a way around that? For example, is, is shift work... Um, for intensivists on the horizon, do you think? Look, I, I personally think shift work for intensivists is very much on the horizon. In the US, it's, it's happening already. And I think that we're going to come up against a community expectation 
um, that says, well, hang on, you know, these are the sickest patients in the hospital. Why are they being left to, to juniors? And it's, you can't answer you can't answer that question. And I think I think we'll be forced in... I think, you know, the emergency docs are already moving rapidly in that direction and their whole specialty is a shift-based shift specialty. Um, I think the anaesthetists are starting to talk about, you know, in the big teaching hospitals, having somebody in-house. And I think it'll happen to us and I think it'll happen to the surgeons. I think gradually we will be expected to provide a 24-hour in-house service. And so I, don't, I think the community won't accept this tradition of ours that we turn off the lights and go home and sick patients in the night are looked after by junior people. Um, so I think it's coming. In terms of do old people do well doing shift work? No, there's abundant evidence that older people do very badly doing shift work. And um, the American College of Emergency Medicine, for instance, has also put out a position statement on ageing. It's one of the very few colleges, actually, that we find anywhere in the world or any body like that. It's got a policy. And the, emergency, the American Emergency Medicine guys have said, um, uh, you know, it would be better to roster the older guys on for uh, daytime weekend shifts than have them do night shifts. Um, and that if they have to do night shifts, they should have a, a longer gap of days off to cope and so on. So, you know, there are ways around it. Well, it seems to me that at least that there's going to need to be some changes in the way that we perform ICU. Do you think that that's likely? Yeah, I think so. Look, again, we're breaking new ground here. But, uh, for instance, we have um, put together a draft policy in the College of Intensive Care, and uh, I'm hopeful that that will go through to be ratified by the board in the next few months. Um, and at this stage... It's a reasonably soft policy. Um, we're not sort of mandating anything. Um, in fact, it's been, it's been titled a position statement rather than a policy. Um, and it recommends things like um, uh, uh, making sure that uh, intensivists uh, have proper health care, that they uh, refrain from corridor consultations, uh, get a GP, be properly looked after. Um, we encourage people um, to be self-aware and self-monitor in terms of their performance as they age. Um, we're proposing that consideration be given um, uh, in groups of intensivists or in hospitals uh, to reducing or eliminating on-call after hours uh, for intensivists. Uh, there are other innovations that uh, we think might be considered, like um, trying to um, perhaps roster uh, senior trainees on with the older practitioners so that they're not so exposed to um, uh, very acute resuscitation work because there's good evidence um, that as you get older you're not quite as good at that sort of thing. And in turn, um, we're proposing that uh, these bodies give consideration to harnessing the expertise and skills of older practitioners, uh, their experience and their, um, their, their knowledge of uh, things gone past political and other and administrative changes perhaps within their hospital that they'll have a good knowledge and understanding of um, and, uh, and harness those things. So we're suggesting basically that consideration be given to um, pulling back um, older intensivists from the front line of acute resuscitation 
and perhaps giving them more of a role in terms of mentoring, teaching, um, perhaps more administration, uh, medico-legal work and those sorts of other things that older practitioners can probably do very well. I think this is something that you alluded to in your paper, but it, it just raises the concern, doesn't it, that, um, that if some of that on-call particularly is... is um, removed from the work practice of the older intensivists, that the younger intensivists will need to pick that up. And there may be a, a disharmony that evolves and uh, even potentially leading to a prejudice against older practitioners. Is that yeah. a concern? Yeah, that, that's certainly an issue. It's certainly an issue. Um, and and it, it's a bit more of a problem for intensive care. So, for instance... Um, I'm aware that there are a number of hospitals now where anaesthetists over 55 don't do after-hours call, um, but it's easier for them because there are often uh, 10 or 20 anaesthetists in the department, so that the load, you know, is shared fairly widely, and um, making a change like that probably only means the occasional extra night. Whereas if you've got a group of perhaps half a dozen or less uh, intensivists, and you decide that uh, two of them are over 55 and shouldn't be on call, that has a major impact. Um, obviously, it, it's going de- to depend on how many people in the group and what the on-call uh, practices are and how often they're called back. Um, and, and that's why we haven't mandated anything in our policy. We've just said, you know, these things should be given due consideration. But on top of that, um, we need to promote a culture where um, this is accepted. It certainly takes place in, in many other professions that older people are spared from certain tasks and, and, and used for different tasks. And, um, you know, we need to change probably from having a philosophy of, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, to something um, a little bit more um, uh, tolerant and broad-minded. And with it, of course, is the understanding by the younger guys that they also will age and their turn will also come. So there are things that can be done. We really wanted at this stage to put the debate on the table because we think it's a discussion that needs to be had. Crystal ball-gazing for just a moment. For, for the registrars who might listen to this podcast, what do you see as being the future in this sort of area when they're finishing their careers in 30 years' time? What I would like to see is I'd like to see enough discussion going on in the specialty that we evolve into those sorts of transitional to retirement practices over, say, the last five years of your career, and that becomes accepted in the norm and, and everybody just does it. I... I also think, honestly, just in terms of crystal ball gazing, along with shift work, which I think, you know, I think is inevitable in our specialty, I think the other thing that's inevitable for the older guys, sadly, is some kind of testing. Certainly if you want to stay on much over 65. Uh, there's a couple of provinces in Canada that mandate um, uh, assessments for anyone who wants to keep working in medicine over 70, for instance. They're pretty soft. They don't make you do a fellowship exam. Um, in fact, they do a peer assessment. So basically, they'll send someone in to work with you for a few days and give you a tick if you're okay. Um, but I think there will be some sort of assessment for, for anyone who wants to stay much over their 60s. 
George, it's um, a fantastic topic. It's one that I must admit I hadn't really given too much thought and uh, congratulations on raising it and uh, hopefully it will take off from here. Thanks, Doc. Did you enjoy our podcast? If you did, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are a leading source of critical care education resources, including podcast interviews with experts in their field, vodcast presentations, exam preparation tools, online learning modules, a journal club, and much, much more. Visit our websites today at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, why not visit our podcast listing on the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating?